welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com podcasts. After a series of damaging scandals and leadership changes, Wells Fargo is trying to let the public know it's cleaning up its act, going so far as to air television ads touting the company's reestablishment. We're holding ourselves accountable to find and fix issues proactively because earning back your trust is our greatest priority. Joining us from our studios in Washington is Jesse Westbrook, Bloomberg News Financial Regulation Editor. Jesse, Wells Fargo has had scandal after scandal and has been trying to clean up its act to no avail. Will this time be any different? Well, um, you know, an interesting part about that is that uh, maybe there is something accurate of their ad in the sense of they are fine. They do seem to keep finding things and they do seem to keep <laughs> reporting yeah. things to regulators. Yeah. Um, really. The uh, the the message of putting the scandals behind them, however, um, you know, it every every day that uh, that we see an ad like that, something new seems to come up. I mean, we had this interesting situation yesterday where they were holding an event here in D.C. and just as that event was going on, um, this story comes out that some senior people were putting uh, putting false social security numbers in corporate client documents that were filed to regulators. And, you know, it was supposed to be one of these events where they're showing people they've changed and and a Republican lawmaker who is actually quite friendly to the banking industry, Jeb Henserling, got up there and trashed them standing in front of a Wells Fargo banner. So if you can't, uh, if you don't have friends in Washington mm-hmm. who are pro-bank, anti-regulation Republicans, I don't know who your friends are. Yeah, mm-hmm. but I mean, it, it's it's not as though it's that hard for lawmakers on either side of the aisle to continue to treat Wells Fargo as kind of a political punching bag. But is this a matter of the bank is offering greater transparency now by getting these uh, bad incidents out in the limelight? Or or is it still uh, committing these bad acts? Has has it just not gone away? Well, there. I, I guess my view the Wells Fargo from the perspective of you know we talk a lot about too big to fail in relation to banks. I mean that's obviously an issue. You know there's arguments in Washington about whether Dodd Frank fixed too big to fail. Clearly, what Dodd Frank did not fix is the too big to manage issue. Um, I mean I don't. I don't have a great insight into Wells Fargo. I'm not inside there every day. But to the degree that these things keep happening, I mean, you get the sense that now some of it, the people at the top are to blame for it. But some of it, you just get the sense they really just have no idea what's going on inside that bank. And, you know, they're they're these big bureaucratic apparatuses where the right hand really doesn't know what the left hand is doing. Um, and even if you try to do things to stem to control that and, and, and tamp it down, there are so many people, uh, the, these institutions are so large, they're global, global footprints. You know, you just can't seem to have everyone rowing in the same direction, so to speak. So the change in management, has that made any difference? Uh, I... <laughs> I mean, I mean, I don't. I don't really answer. I don't really want to. I mean, I don't really want to take any shots at, at at the CEO Tim Sloan. I don't. I don't know him. I've never met him. I've never talked to him. Um, I mean, I will say that you know, sort of observing this less as a journalist and more just as you know, a member of the public. I'm not sure 
the contrition has been mm. strong enough with Wells Fargo. And even under Sloan, I'm not sure that sort of message of being contrite has been powerful enough. I mean, you sort of look at these ads and, you know, the last person I really have sincerely believed that Wells Fargo has fixed things is Wells Fargo. I mean, I'm not I, – I, I, that message would resonate more if I had someone who was sort of an objective – analyst who spent six months in there digging under every rock and told me it's fixed. But sort of the, 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 the taint of that bank is so strong. I mean, we're supposed to believe them that they've fixed their problems. And meanwhile, we keep getting this evidence every day that they haven't fixed their problems. And back to Sloan, I mean, you know, there's been a couple instances where being contrite probably would have gone further than being sort of the combative way that he has been in some instances. He's been a little combative with the press. You know, he he's made some statements at times where, you know, oh, it's the press's fault this stuff keeps popping up. Well, no, it's your fault that you're not fixing the problems. I mean, you know, that's what journalists do. We dig. Mm-hmm. We look for problems. We're not – we're rarely reporting that the sun is out today. We're, we're, looking, <laughs> we're looking for bad Great stuff. analysis, Jesse. So, so, you know, we're looking for bad stuff. So give us less bad stuff to find I guess would be, would be the way well, I would put it. You've, you've rolled out the carpet nicely for us to uh, let our listeners know that we will in fact be speaking with Wells Fargo CEO Tim Sloan. We'll see if he continues his combative stance with the media when he speaks with uh, Bloomberg Television's Eric Schatz. You can hear that conversation uh, this coming Monday afternoon, 4 p.m. Wall Street time. But we won't play Jesse's comments. Yeah. We won't play Jesse's comments. I'm not going to hold them to it. We'll see what happens. (laughs) But at any rate, that's coming up at 4 p.m. Wall Street time. I was trying to be nice. This coming Monday on Bloomberg Radio and TV. Want to switch to uh, uh, another topic that you and your team have been uh, covering at the FinReg uh, team, uh, Jesse. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. They're not supposed to be lobbying about whether they should continue to operate, but apparently uh, that admonition isn't stopping Fannie's general counsel. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so a uh, uh, good reporter who works for me knows more about Fannie and Freddie than anyone I know. Joe Light um, had this story about their general counsel going out and meeting with stakeholders, people associated with the Trump administration, and t- t- expressing the view that he thinks that that the Trump administration should find a solution for these companies on their own, on its own, cut Congress out of the picture. Congress has not been able to do anything about these companies for a decade. They continue to sit under the government's thumb. They're they're sort of in this, you know, purgatory of not really independent companies, but they've got such a huge footprint in the mortgage market. So he he wants them to take the bull by the horns and and fix this. Now on the surface, that doesn't sound like a bad thing. I mean, we do need a solution to Fannie and Freddie. It's just sort of one of these things that has enormous implications um, in Washington and beyond, and no one really has a, a good idea to what to do about it. And just like everything in Washington, there's no immediate crisis. And unless we have an immediate crisis, no one in Washington is going to do anything. So these massive companies that are basically, you know, cutting to the chase of the argument, propping up the housing and mortgage market have been in this state of purgatory for a decade. Um, what might be inappropriate about what, uh, what Mr. Brooks is doing, um, inappropriate is a strong word, uh, there is um, awkwardly or you know, unfortunately a ban on lobbying at these companies. And that's because people who have been in this town a long time remember before the crisis, there were no bigger lobbying powerhouses in Washington, D.C. than Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. 
every lawmaker was on their payroll, so to speak. <laughs> um, and they had huge galas and breakfasts and, you know, many attempts to regulate the companies and prevent them from growing bigger and bigger were halted. And that was, you know, a lot of people, smart people smarter than me, I think that was largely right. because of their lobbying prowess. Jesse, so. we'll, we'll have to stop you there and we'll pick up with this another time. Thanks. That's Jesse Westbrook, Bloomberg News Financial Regulation Editor. In a phone interview with Bloomberg yesterday, Rudy Giuliani, President Trump's lawyer, said that special counsel Robert Mueller has indicated he'd be willing to narrow the scope of an interview with Trump. Speaking on CNN this morning, Giuliani repeated that assertion. They sent us a, a response. I, I can't go into detail, but narrowing the, the subjects for questioning down to about two. Joining me is Jimmy Garula, a professor at Notre Dame Law School. Jimmy, sometimes I wonder if Giuliani's real intent is to wear us down with this bouncing ball explanation of what's happening in the case and contradictions about the facts. He's gotten the facts wrong before. How likely is it that Mueller would narrow the interview down to two questions? Oh, I think it's highly unlikely. Excuse me, and I think it's another uh, example, indication of uh, of Giuliani either uh, not knowing what the uh, president's intentions and desires are, or he's just speculating as to what he thinks the president will go along with, and and, and then from day to day he seems to to flip and flop back and forth on uh, on these issues. So I think what what he says on any given day should be taken with a grain of salt. Does it seem that the problem is not so much the scope of the interview as the likelihood that Trump, no matter how much prep there is, and it doesn't seem like they're leaving room for much, will contradict himself or the facts, and Mueller may know them as well as Trump? I think that's the real danger. You you hit it right on the head. Uh, First of all, Trump has a a long history of of flip-flopping, exaggerating, misstating, misleading, uh, on a number of different issues. Uh, and here he's going to go in to an interview with an adversary who's going to be fully informed on very specific details, very specific facts in which he can rebut and challenge uh, Trump's claims. And, and I think it's a, it's a grave danger, a risk that, that Trump is, uh, is, is running if he agrees to this type of interview. According to Politico, Giuliani also said he got a verbal assurance from a top Mueller deputy that the special counsel intends to follow a pair of Justice Department legal opinions that say a sitting president can't be indicted. Legal opinions change. There, there are no specific cases on point. Correct. Could that change if, for example, let's say Trump perjures himself in it, an interview? It's, it's possible, but I, but I think it's highly unlikely. I, I think it's clear from the Constitution that the framers envisioned uh, – with respect to bringing criminal charges against a sitting president, that that be a political process, not a legal process. And that political process would be the process of impeachment. Again, the caveat there is while the president is sitting in office. Now, once he he is removed from office or he doesn't run for re-election or he's defeated, he's like any other citizen. And he could be uh, criminally charged for for any crime that uh, he allegedly committed. 
Mueller's team apparently offered no assurances, according to Giuliani, that the investigation would end shortly after a presidential interview, which is one of Giuliani's demands. What do you make of that? Because they've they've been there. The rumors have been and the, the talk has been that Mueller wants to close the obstruction of investigation. But first, he wants to hear about intent from Trump. Well, that's true. I mean, the, 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 the investigation is, is on two parallel tracks. The, the first track is, of course, uh, the issue of whether there was uh, R- Russia interference in the 2016-11, and more specifically, whether there was uh, a conspiracy between uh, Russian government officials and, and, and members of the Trump campaign. And then the second track is the obstruction of justice track, whether the president has taken actions, uh, including the firing of FBI director, former FBI director Comey, to obstruct justice, to thwart, thwart the investigation. But, but again, we, we have to put this in perspective. Y- yes, it's one year. This investigation has been going on one year. But let's look at past investigations of presidents, including white, the Whitewater scandal involving President Clinton. That went on for, for, I think, close to six years before it was finally concluded. I think 75% of, of Clinton's tenure in office uh, involved uh, this investigation. This investigation was going on during that period of time. So one year, I think, when you put it in perspective, is a relatively short time for this type of very complex criminal investigation. Yeah, he seems to be moving rather quickly, if you if you ask me, when you when you look at the indictments and things. Yeah. Let's turn no, to that's some... true. I mean, if you look at the numbers, we're looking at 19 people that have been indicted or pleaded guilty, and then uh, as well as three Russian uh, companies uh, that have been indicted. So that's a, a, a very a robust, uh, substantial track record of, of investigations, prosecutions in that one-year period of time. Let's turn to some of the civil lawsuits that Trump is facing. A New York appeals court rejected his request to put a defamation lawsuit by a former apprentice candidate, Summer Zevos, Zevos on hold. And the judge in that case had said in March when she rejected Trump's request to throw out the lawsuit, no one is above the law. What does that ruling tell you? Well, exactly that. It's very important. It's very fundamental to the to, to American democracy. American democracy is founded on the rule of law, and central to that tenet is that no one is above the rule of law, including the president. And so, like any other citizen, the president can be sued. Like any other citizen, he can be the target of a criminal investigation. Now, at the same time, in fairness, you know, it's important that these these civil and criminal investigations do not. Uh, significantly disrupt the president's ability to govern. But if these investigations can be conducted, especially the civil investigations, in, in a way that doesn't substantially interfere with governance, then they should be permitted to go forward. And someone who has been harmed should be afforded his or her day in court. So, Jimmy, we have about uh, 45 seconds here, but does it seem to you as if these civil investigations are almost causing more trouble for Trump than the, than the criminal? Well, certainly the Stormy Daniels uh, investigation has been, and, and it's a huge headache uh, for the president. It's been very embarrassing. The president has been caught in, in a lie. Uh, on, on one occasion, he said he, he, he knew nothing about the payment, and then we love to, to Stormy Daniels this $130,000 payment, only to learn later that, in fact, he did know about it and, in fact, uh, reimbursed his attorney, David Cohen, $100,000. Right. Thank you, Jimmy. As always, that's Jimmy Garule, a professor at Notre Dame Law School. Thanks for listening to 
to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.